Hello and welcome to the Right Track Podcast. This is our fourth episode and we have a very special one this week. I don't know if you know this, but the 26th of May is the anniversary of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So I decided we should absolutely talk about it. And mostly we're going to talk about the descent of vampire, how they went from horrible to love interest, basically. I have a great panel with me this week. Two people you might recognize and another one you are going to love. Could you please introduce yourselves? My name's EJ Dawson, uh, running under EJ. You can find me on my um, website at ejdawson.com and uh, all my social media platforms there. I write fantasy, sci-fi and paranormal horrors and uh, currently uh, waiting on publication date for Behind the Veil with Literary Wonderlust. Hello, my name is Luke Greensmith. I'm a researcher of uh, folklore and the paranormal for the Ghost Story Guide podcast. I also work on a film. I'm very interested in horror, and I write um, horror scripts. Hi, my name is Axel. I go by the handle Luna's Musing, and I'm currently writing a fantasy book. When I'm not doing that, I'm blogging and just avoiding all work. <laughs> That's what I'm doing, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now, so like I said, the anniversary of Dracula is upon us. So I really thought it would be interesting for us to talk about it. And I'm so excited that they wanted to join me this week. Um, basically, right now, we're going to talk about the origins of vampires. Do, you, do any of you know any interesting aspects of the origination of vampire folklore? I could go on for a while. <laughs> Please do. Okay, um, pre-Bram Stoker, um, there's vampire myths all around the world. They all seem to like share quite a few commonalities. Um, and they come down to uh, fears of death and disease. So like, you'll find like an epidemic of a family dying. They go and look at this corpse in the times before embalming. It's bloated. It's got uh, blood running down from its mouth. Just normal bloating from a rotting corpse. And... People then suspect it's a vampire. More people die. It's more disease. That seems to be the boring origin of uh, supposedly real vampires. The one that I've seen quite often, like you're saying that it's all gross. I've seen stuff like the vampire written in like 1748. And there's like a lot of like erotic overtones and everything. So I'm like, it's kind of kept its theme with Dracula. Yeah. In that kind of sexual kind of world. The sexual tension a lot with the vampire stories. I just went back to like the most simple and boring thing. Like the um looking at the, the traditional Euro ghoul that got um <laughs> written up into Dracula. Because uh, Bram Stoker did take a lot of um traditional folklore on there. I think but with the folklore with the the folklore aspect of it, it, it comes together in a lot of different literature sources. So there's the stuff that they tell you to keep kids indoors at night and that's superstition and whatnot. And, you know, you do see evidence of that in history too with the way that people are sometimes buried. Um, they used to put um, – they used to do all kinds of weird things like put nails in people's ears and lemons in mouths and stuff. And there's a lot of humour that's been taken out of that. But people generally had a lot of mystification around death and it was an easy way to explain – what actually happened sometimes, which was that they assumed a person was dead and they were not, and they came back to life. Um, but, you know, they were just ill or dis disease-ridden, as, as said before. Um, 
and I think that the the romanticizing is it has more to do with with um, a forbidden aspect of um, the sort of the vampire genre, um, which you know is very exciting, particularly um, uh, to women who uh, often weren't allowed to um, explore their sexuality. So it was was a bit of an outlet, and I think that's what the ultimate conversion has become. The years of repression, especially as female writers take urban fantasy on and make it their own, really turned it around from the fear of sexuality into the exploration of sexuality. Well, yes, and I also think it has to do with permission too, because, you know, a lot of women live in very terrified worlds where they're, you know, and particularly in the past, where they're beholden to their husbands and sometimes they didn't want to actually marry them. And I think that the the vampirism holds still an element to it, and certainly not all vampire vampirism but there's an element to it that holds a sense of you need permission to take blood and that and that is an ultimately seductive thing for women who who previously and still now don't have a choice whereas there's an element here that that i think is an often very criticized um genre uh, this the vampire romance aspect but it's actually about permission there is the um the other side of the coin to that, and it's about not inviting the wrong one in. Um, but there's a lot to explore either way or between the two of them. Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting point to make because when I went into this, I was thinking like, oh, vampires just very recently became like a sexy type deal. But reading through Bram Stoker's story, I saw like, no, it's always had like some sexual undertones, whether it was good or bad or whatnot. So I thought that was very interesting. And I think when I went into it, I was like, oh, it's it's they think of sex as bad at first, but or, you know, just all the way through. But EJ's point of that, it was pretty liberating for women. I, I think I see that. I didn't think about that at first. At first, I was just thinking, oh, people might like it because it's a bad boy or they hate it because <laughs> it's horrific. But to actually think that it meant something that deep for people, I think that makes sense. Yeah, there's the appeal of vampires. It's not just that they are a parable or an interpretation of them, death. There actually is an enduring appeal to vampires because they are alluring. There is something interesting and primal there to them that is the upside of a vampire. And I think it's too about desire. Quite often, women were not allowed to um, not allowed to have desires. They weren't allowed to um, they weren't allowed to explore their own sexuality. And I think a part of that, you know, vampires aren't just the horror monster because um, you know whatever you say about them, there's no question about whether they're good or not. They're they're the bad guys. So it's not just about the forbidden aspect of of being with a man you shouldn't, or um, about um about about sex it's also about forbidden desires mm-hmm. it's quite interesting though because even in like bram stoker's like dracula there's like the two women what is it lucy and mina they're still kind of like meek and like pure yet when you see the sisters they're like the complete opposite and it comes back to they're the evil ones so they're the ones that like um are alluring and they're the ones who always want sex or whatever Mm-hmm. in comparison to the actual two leads. There's a lot to blame Bram Stoker for there because he was very puritanical. <laughs> well, ultimately, I think it's down to, and this is a re- really interesting um, 
concept. I think it's down to the the reader themselves to take away what they want for it. So if you're not Puritan, if you're not if you're not sitting there going, oh, they're naughty, um, <laughs> you 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 have the opposite spectrum where you're like, oh yes, I could get into those that 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 little trio there. If that's your bent, if that's what you like, then that's what you're going to be attracted to. So ultimately this aspect of even though Bram Stoker was like, this is naughty, everyone was just like, yeah, but I still want some. <laughs> I think that ties into like we're going to talk about Twilight later. A lot of people who are fans of Twilight, they're persistently, uh, like, try, everyone tries to shame them. They still like it. Still their thing. Yeah, I wonder about like the the women and the guys who were reading it back then. They're, Bram Stoker is probably like, yeah, they're going to be good, good people, good religious people. And the people back then was like, yes, where's these vampires that I need one in my bed right now? That's crazy. <laughs> now, I was going to say, it's like um, Red Riding Hood. The moral story was don't talk to strangers. What a lot of little girls took from it is werewolves sound awesome. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'd say that. <laughs> Twilight didn't help that. <laughs> no, Twilight... Twilight didn't, but I also think that, and this is not a popular opinion, I know. Oh, goodness, I'm doing it. I'm saying an unpopular opinion. I didn't like Twilight because um, while it had that that same element of a nightly visitor and whatnot, there, in modern times there was a lot of things done in the books and the film which is very um, – no, it's not healthy for young it's girls to very see questionable. Mm-hmm. there's a lot of really questionable themes in it but that doesn't change the fact that everyone lapped it up like no tomorrow and i'll give you the best example of of how great and terrible a story like twilight is my sister does not read romance books my sister does not read vampire books in fact she, she's just not her cup of tea of all she likes you know books so big you can't hold them in your hands in fantasy high fantasy and that's pretty much the only thing that she will read and I gave her Twilight and she read the entire book between 11 p.m and 4 a.m and then tried to hide it from me when she was staying with me one time and she couldn't believe that she just had to keep turning the pages and I think that's because there's, it doesn't matter who or what you are, and it doesn't matter if you can sit there and look at it objectively, Twilight is still a wonderful story about forbidden romance. Uh, yeah, well, it comes back around to permission again, is because uh, Twilight was just mainstream enough to give people permission to like it. Mm, mm. So it's all got a bit meta there on permission. Agreed. Well, I think that, yeah, and I think that, that um, it's, an, it's an interesting aspect because um, Edward Cullen is so forceful and he's so ag- aggressive, um, and he's the, just the things that he he does with with Bella, just even in that first book. But ultimately, he still had to he he still had to ask her. I think a part of the psychological element behind Twilight is that by the time that she she said she wanted to give, you know, she wanted she wanted him to, it was almost like. She was so infatuated with him and he should have known better. It didn't matter. Her permission didn't matter anymore. Um, whereas I think, and I think that's true too of, of all of the vampire stories. This is an almost stalkish element to it. So once you take away the fact that it's an exploration of forbidden romance, you've also got this, this uh, the other side to it, which is a lot nastier. Yeah, I think your opinion is not that unpopular anymore because I feel like as the times are changing, like even from just a decade ago, 
women are really starting to like call out the the bull crap so people that were fans of it like me and oxa like <laughs> we can we can see the problematic tendencies of it and i i so i can see both sides of the coin and i think that's super cool and you know it like when i was young i was like oh my gosh he loves her and he just wants to protect her and i didn't even really see him as like an aggressive person but now that i'm older i'm like he was this is very he she was like his prey or something like first of all he was super old and then second of all like he he just like I know Bella was like all into it and everything but kind of some abusive stuff was going on like I can't really speak about the specifics because I can't even recall them but yeah I see what you're saying I was kind of like the opposite. Like, I never really got the appeal of Edward, but I was just kind of like, I guess they are a good couple, though. And the more I think about it, I'm like, but were they? Like, they no. weren't. Like, yeah, I have a whole long list about everything that, like, Edward does. And even then, I, di- I did not think of him as aggressive. But, like, they- I'm just going to go back to the stalking. That's, like, my main point. <laughs> like, he was constantly stalking her. Like, he knew exactly where to find her. He would sneak into her room which I realized actually happens in a lot of vampire fiction. Whoa. But, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's like also a very brings common it theme. To, it brings it back to the horror element too, which is what it was originally for, which is that this person is going to invade your home. And that's a whole other different kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Although, ironically, it's probably the closest that it gets to actually being faithful to vampire folklore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. sparkly vampires, no. What was she thinking, <laughs> honestly? Uh, again, to defend it, the... Sunlight doesn't really kill traditional vampires. They just didn't lose. They just lost a lot of their power in the sunlight. I think the, like the first vampire that got killed by sunlight was the um, silent film Nosferatu in um, Dracula. The sunlight just slows him down. It doesn't actually um, stop him. Although mm-hmm. sparkling is a bit going too far the other way, really. <laughs> I was just thinking. My thing with sparkling is even if it's a cloudy day, there's some like residue of sun. Would they still not sparkle? Like, I just I'm starting to think about the logistics. Like, how does it work? Magic. Sorry. Just... <laughs> yeah, it's magic. A wizard oh. did it. <laughs> Twilight is the epitome of like whatever you think up. If you do it good enough, it will be successful. Like, if with the right factors, like you can do anything. So, well, I think it's an interesting. Um, it's it's interesting when you consider other works. Like, I know that uh, the, the Vampire Diaries are actually going to be a topic of conversation during this podcast, and um, I, I've been very interested in the TV show because when I was a teenager, I actually read the original books by L. J. Smith. Mm-hmm. And they 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 were pretty much the the eighties nineties version of Twilight. It was mm-hmm. the exact same. Stay away from me. I'm dangerous. And she's like, "Oh, but you're hot. <laughs> I'm attracted to you." I will still defend like Stefan Salvatore though with all my heart. Like even to this day, he's so sweet. <laughs> I I because you know what I even wrote about this. Like I was thinking, you know, with Stefan, like he is kind of painted as like a bad guy. Like at the beginning, he's kind of like the hero like yeah he's exactly what you want and then he come they come out with oh he's actually done some really bad things he was like a huge serial killer and i'm like that's why i like him he actually has depth <laughs> where in comparison to like edward like i i just don't know his story mm-hmm. he's kind of just been there and then he's had bella for like what a week and he wanted to kill himself 
So like, I, dude, I just didn't feel like a depth with other kind of characters. You telling me you ain't had one girlfriend in 100 years? <laughs> Not I, one. I think it's the same thing. <laughs> but um, I wonder... was literally thirsty in more ways than one. <laughs> I think it's also about the age where you're at too. It just everyone's got teenage crushes, and you're at that sensitive age where you you know you're working out what you do and don't like, and what is also you know, about your own sexuality. And I think that the first, you know, if you read Twilight, Twilight would be your go-to. If you read Dracula, Dracula would be your go-to. If you read Interview with a Vampire or the L.J. Smith Night World and, and Vampire Diary series, oh, yeah. that would... Night World's were my first. Yeah. I read um, Twilight before Vampire Diaries, though. Oh, really? Yeah, because, yeah, I think Twilight was literally, like, the first vampire thing I ever read. And then yeah. I obviously had to like Jacob more because... <laughs> typical teenager <laughs> well um the thing with twilight is that as much as it can be um, get a bit of pushback for all the things that are, are problematic with it it's also the gateway to a lot of people to go on from twilight to other things like um it's the uh, it's what got the teenage girls into reading that style mm. and you can definitely see like the you know the echoes of it throughout the books that are out today like whether people want to you know admit it or not i can see like a lot of the traits and aspects from twilight in their book even if it's just like a fantasy book or whatnot it's just like like ej says stay away from me i'm dangerous he's dangerous (laughs) for some reason oh my gosh but that might be just a, a typical thing i don't know but yeah it does have roots around i've got my notes ready for that when we get around to it a bit more um I wonder what, like, what took it from being this horrific thing? I was reading my my um, notes, and I was like, you you could see all around the world that people were freaking out about these vampires and actually very scared. Like, they had certain rituals for burying people. They put stakes in their hearts. I've seen, they said they put lemons in their mouths, and garlic oh, around their neck, yeah, and just their stuff head. like that. Like, so the stake yeah. of the heart wasn't to kill a vampire. That's like a modern like takeaway from the old stories. They were nailing okay. the corpse to the coffin so it wouldn't get out. Okay, okay. Um, well, that's some culture. It gets all over the place, but the heart probably does have spiritual significance as well. But they were trying to stop the body from moving, so they'd also uh, rebury the coffin upside down so it tries to get out or dig down deeper. Uh, some cultures, they thought that the vampires were obsessive, so they would put... Poppy seeds in the coffin for them to count because they wouldn't get out until they'd counted it. Or, and this one's brilliant, they would hide one of the shoes that the, the suspected vampire was buried in so it would waste a night trying to find its other shoe instead of hunting people. I think, I'm sorry, I, I did laugh and I am sorry, but I think I think that is funny. And I think that one of the, one of the probably one of the best and most overlooked pieces of fiction about this is uh, Terry Pratchett, who's a fantasy author, but he did feature one of his books, Cup jugulum and one of the things they actually he talks it's it's that they talk about in the script is these uh, vampires coming to take over this small slice of the country and um one of the things that they actually mock quite a lot is all those very very strange and weird burial methods and taking vampires socks and the character getting irritated and i think you can't help but laugh at it i mean it was scary back then but these days you laugh oh yeah Um, they've been been defanged somewhat but uh, pratchett's brilliant for stuff like that I'll have to read it. That I think it, their methods are just crazy. Like it's I know it was very scary, but like just the 
you know, the the cartoonish practicality of it all. It's like, oh, well, he's going to need a hat when he gets out. So, you know, let's steal his hat or something. It's like, what? Who came up with this? Yeah, I mean, I think what stopped vampires being scary, really, was knowing them. Because they were just so well known. Like, the fear goes, fear comes from the unknown. Once they became mm-hmm. such a known quantity, so like starting with Stoker and going onwards, a lot of the fear factor was gone then. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's a different kind of fear. I think that it, there is still an element of fear. There's an element of the unknown. But when you cobble it together with that whole permission and forbidden desires and and all of that, um, all of that sort of stuff. You end up you end up mixing up the fear because all you end up doing is you end up changing it um, from from like the the kind of fear. So there's a and there's an element of it when you see in in, in um, uh, the extensions onwards exploring forbidden desires, which of course is going to be Fifty Shades of Grey because it was originally written as a fan fiction of Twilight. Um, and so I think there's a duality there. You're either afraid because it's really, really scary or you're mildly afraid, but it's still attractive. Yeah, there's just yeah. enough fear so that it's um, exciting, not that you actually feel like you're in actual danger. Although anyone that was uh, being caught by Christian Grey should bloody run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it is about that, um, the raising of adrenaline, but because also because, you know, exploring forbidden desires is exciting as is any foray into anything of a sexual nature. It's supposed to be exciting. It's supposed to engage you in a certain manner. So there's a certain allowance for fear in that situation, which is interestingly played with both from the Dracula's point of view um, to all the way up into Twilight and then on to Fifty Shades. All right. (laughs) Okay. So we basically talked about the metamorphosis of them through time or the origins of the vampire. We went into the metamorphosis. Um, You want to talk more urban fantasy boom? Because I can uh, go into a bit of detail of that. The stuff that bridges um, basically Stoker through to Twilight. Yes. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, when did it actually turn into, like, not really tragic heroes, but like full on love interests rather than something you should be scared of? Um, yeah, it's a bit muddy, but I think you can really blame Anne Rice for that. Yeah, um, she like oh, blame the, Rice. yeah, blame Anne Rice. Well, she's um, she's still <laughs> doing the Vampire Chronicles now. Which she started mid seventies, I think seventy four, and um, that's been going nonstop since uh, seventy six. I think. Um, um, the thing I found funny, she didn't publish a book for like twenty years or something, right? I'm not sure about. I I I I can't really remember it off by heart, but I just remember like she went back into like from being an atheist for a long time to being quite religious and that like changed how she viewed like her own books in the vampire chronicles so she really didn't publish a book for a long time uh the big break yeah she's done recent ones again i think um 2016 or actually maybe 2018 was the last one oh wow but there was a break in between them like where she got really popular and then she stepped away from it for a while except for just like smacking people with um lawsuits for doing fan fiction (laughs) and then came back to it after that Okay. I might have to read that new one, actually. Right, um, the whole thing with the urban fantasy just as its own um, genre, it's been around for a long time, but only really started um, like codifying into what we now call urban fantasy. It started sometime in the 70s, so you got Anne Rice again, where she started. Um, one of the first things that really looked like what you expect urban fantasy to look like was Kolchak the Night Stalker on TV. 
It was um, very similar to what we um, now see. It was a Chicago reporter taking on vampires and zombies in a modern city setting, and that kind of aesthetic, and like Anne Rice bringing vampires into the contemporary setting as well. That was a really good foundation of urban fantasy. Now, when I was researching this, I came across something that I haven't read myself, so I feel like I've missed out a little bit, but um, <laughs> Neil Gaiman says that the Borderlands shared universe that Terry Wilding started is where urban fantasy really began for the modern era. So has anyone actually come across that before? No. No, you've got me. I've got my list of urban fantasy authors, but that's not one of them. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think it's like one of the ones that's um, still kind of cult and underground, especially if it's Neil Gaiman that's picked it up. Um, so I'm going to be digging that one up myself later. Um, everyone pretty much knows <laughs> Anne Rice, but like a really big mainstream b- breakout was quite an obvious one, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, look, so many people copy that, so much more so than Twilight. The kitchen sink approach to horror tropes, as in using everything. Superpowered female lead with frequent vampire love interests, ultimately including a multi-vampire love triangle at one point. And it was mm-hmm. such a mainstream hit that I think it inspired a lot of people. Like, even though it wasn't the start of urban fantasy, it made people like know in their bones distinctively. Like if you say someone space opera, they know what a space opera is. You say urban fantasy, people recognize that like as a cultural touchstone now. But I think you're right, and we touched on this before that it, 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 and obviously it's the the TV. It was originally obviously the movie in the '80s before Joss turned it into the TV series in the '90s. But I think too, it it holds an element of pulling in a lot of teenage girls, not just because of the the the, the forbidden attraction, but also because for a lot of very ordinary and powerless women. Um, or, or young women, um, it enabled them to think, hey, actually, no, you know, I might not be superpowered, but I can do this because the show uh, greatly encapsulates having strength that's not totally reliant on superpowers, it's reliant on character. Yeah, like this, um, all the supporting cast, a lot of them were either um, unpowered or exploring things. So, um, like witchcraft got brought in with LGBT issues and all sorts when it comes to the ideas of exploration within the show. Um, so I think it just really resonated with a lot of people as like empowerment, like you can do this, you can be more. Uh, even guys really latched onto it, not just like the super powered characters, but someone as uh, both pathetic and important as the comic relief Xander character. I think a lot of people also. Um, uh recognize Xander in another front that he was the and they do explore this a little bit in the show and it kind of goes off um to one side but Xander's interest in Buffy as more than a friend that's kind of also it it and I don't remember the show that well but I thought that was really interesting because a lot of women do have friends like Xander or a lot of people are like Xander they've got a person that they're friends with in the social circle they're more interested in and it develops into something you know a much a much much better friendship which is acceptable and you know and i'm pretty sure pretty sure that um that you know um the um lunar and val can, can say this with me is that they've got they've had someone like that in their life who was a friend who was interested in them and it, it often either develops into a better friendship or it goes very very sour very very quickly yeah many times <laughs> many times <laughs> But Buffy, I think, did it the right way. 
I think it's funny how the show is literally about killing and slaying vampires. And they still work the romance in there. They were like, you know what? We got to make it sexy. (laughs) And what perfect entity to use than the vampire? Why? Why is that? Well, I know maybe it's just because it's not gory enough. Do you think it's because, oh, drinking blood is kind of hot Kid or um, you know, biting their neck is kind of hot. If they were like biting a leg or something, like your <laughs> shin, do you think they would be as <laughs> likely to make the vampires romantic interest? But that's the thing. In I'm um, sorry to go back to L. J. Smith again, but like in the Vampire Diaries, they even explicitly say it's meant to like feel really good for both parties. So I'm just like, how? Like, um, I don't know. That's the one that's like really picked up on it, and they're like, it genuinely like is meant to be something that like is great but in every other kind of one i'm not sure where it's come from oh like, dear. i think the neck is just a very intimate area um i think you can blame bram stoker for that one because it was victorian <laughs> sensibilities it was um the word is penetration mm-hmm. uh, yes of course how could we forget the snake <laughs> and all the phallic symbols as well yeah because like you couldn't really do the um explicit this is um, sex, especially like in that era, but the undertone was there, and I think that stayed with the stories. I don't know if you've read, um, and here's the thing that the, I think, uh, see what Luna's saying, is that yes, there's an element there of a phallic symbol, but um, LJ Smith actually dev- devolves down into that, in that there's a component of the saliva which acts as a as an aphrodisiac to the victim so so that they enjoy it which is you know once again harking back to permission and whatnot but there's an element um there where the the um the bitee um would couldn't help but in, enjoy what was, they were experiencing um and she's quite specific about that and uses it to heighten the the romance lover angles in in her stories I, yeah, I just remember in the show, it was like Elena and Stefan, it was like a lot of shots of just like them two. And it's meant to be like, I don't think, I don't think they use the word soulmates, but people who are like a couple and want to take their relationship further. There's some certain like um, rather rude parable when you take it down into it. Like you talk about the um, saliva being aphrodisiac. That's also the exchange of bodily fluids, which is a intimate thing. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's a it's a PG version of the actual act, which you know, obviously, they don't, you know, it's not graphically sexual, but it's yeah, it's a it's a toned down and, and acceptable sort of angle to talk about. Where it was, you're absolutely right. They're still talking about the act of sex in a different content. So, at what point do you think that it really entered popular culture? Do you think it was with Bram Stoker's book? Um, Bram Stoker massively popularized it. I think um, like there was no TV and the printing was still quite difficult back then. So um, to actually make the classic book and get printed, um, it was it, it was serialized. So it was in newspapers, and it did. It's so popular it still gets reinterpreted now. I think that Bram Stoker you can point to because um, just vampires in general. I think Varney the Vampire predated um, Dracula, but that's just like a pub quiz answer. It has nowhere near the impact that the novel Bram Stoker did. Uh, that's the thing. I was reading up, even though Bram Stoker, like Dracula, is very popular to us, um, I saw that, like, sort of in his years, it wasn't actually that famous. It was 
when Nosferatu came out, that's kind of when they predated it back to Dracula. So before that, before even like the 1900s, Dracula wasn't getting that much recognition. Yeah, the um, the movies really picked it up. Well, uh, nearly as much as it really <laughs> should have. But I also think it was, but I think for modern pop culture, it's when the movies with, um, oh, now somebody's going to remind, it's not Christopher Lee, there was another one. Christopher Lee was another actor in the 50s before that. that, that um, was, Universal was Bela Lugosi. Thank you, that guy. I think that's what helped bring it back, back into it. And I think that's where it's also um, got its more um, romantic uh, bent, the, the, and that's where you get a very iconic um, symbol of a, a virgin in a nightgown at the window being yeah. abducted by a stranger. Yeah, that really did bring it back into the cultural mainstream, but I think it was an important point that um, the book itself really probably did need the rip-off Nosferatu to go from, uh, to really popularise it. So that little bit of plagiarism went a long way on the grand scheme of things. But um, you go from Bela Lugosi, then you move on to like Hammer, Horror, had Christopher Lee, you had the Italian Exploitation, and we're talking about like Forbidden Desires. The Italian Exploitation was very big on its lesbian vampires, which um, sounds like a joke, but like when the society's more repressed, you getting mm-hmm. hold of this exploitation film might be the first time some people in a more repressed society actually got, like, think, oh, that is possible, <laughs> sort of thing. Well, more importantly, actually depicted on, on mainstream TV. And, you know, I think it helps a lot when, when you've gone from the ugly and scary and freakish-looking Nosferatu onto Bela Lugosi. Oh, well, yeah, like, um, that must have helped. And I think that was very, very true to um, what Bram Stoker was doing there, is that like a lot of his horror and his fear was like the fear of strangers, the fear of foreigners. Xenophobia came into that. And I think that Dracula being appealing is a huge part of the enduring appeal of vampires. It's very rare we go back to a Count Orlok Nosferatu-looking vampire, except as like a bestial side of a vampire character to show... Um, on, like to show visually their true nature, their turn from the mask they put on to the monster. And I think it's an interesting discourse too between between those two parts. And this this actually goes to a completely other horror writer, which is uh, Jekyll and Hyde, the two different sides of of, of man, but also women, the, the side that's innocent and obeys the rules and 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 whatnot, as opposed to the the, the effectively the animals that are all still inside. Yeah, when it comes to um, Stevenson and Jekyll and Hyde, that was more about um, embracing evil. So um, a lot of modern interpretations like to give you a big hulking um, Hyde, which I think you can blame Alan Moore for because you think he did that first. Um, originally, um, Hyde was like a shriveled and dwarf that everyone was instantly revulsed by, even though he didn't look too different. So it's like the there's a strange like change to like modern culture as it embraces liberation more, seems to like its monsters more, and then originally they were much more intended to be repulsive. Well, we kind of already answered. Sorry, breaking the fourth wall. We've been all over the place. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, I think we'll Sorry, I was hoping that segue would actually lead into vampires comparing to other monsters. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what I was just about to tell. 
Oh, we can go because, back once. Wait, I mean, like, vampires and werewolves well, are now lumped together very much because, um, werewolves... And this is the thing, werewolves are not hot. Like, sorry, sorry, werewolves let me rephrase that completely. Like, it's, 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 there's a certain element of wet dog about <laughs> werewolves that sort of um, deter from their, their, their sexual attractiveness because vampires flat out are just hot. That, you know, and if they're not hot, they're ugly, long clawed, bald, creepy sort of things. There's no in between. Whereas the werewolf spectrum is he's a man or a dog. And let's face it, unless you've got some really messed up sexual tastes, no one is going to want to do it with a dog. <laughs> right. uh, I think that it's not so much about being attracted to the um, angry murder wolf, it's more about letting your animal side out and embracing the primal urges. Mm hmm. I have a whole thing for shifter romances, but <laughs> yeah. that, that's if like... you want to go into it, you can. Oh, don't worry. I've got a list. I've got a, like. A, I want to like briefly touch on my favorite urban fantasy series soon, and that's much more looking into like there's there's definitely sexy shifters going on. I, can I can I can I take a plug at what I think it might be? Go on. What? It's is it the Anita Anita Blake series? Anita Blake is on the list. <laughs> okay. No, I was hoping that you'd say Anita Blake because I can't. Like her, her version of monsters is very much goes back down to the individuals because she's got vampires and shapeshifters and all those sorts of monsters. But at the end of the day, it, it comes down to an individual as opposed to a, for lack of a better word, species. Yeah, but or the really type. good thing with that is that while she doesn't do it to be scary, she does it to explore character. Like Laura K. Hamilton is a good writer. I really enjoy her Anita Blake series. The trick there really is that if you want to make vampires or werewolves scary again now, it has to be about the individual being scary, and then the vampirism or the lycanthropy is then just like um, a parable for their power. I have to confess, just, you know, um, I, uh, I think I've got 16 of the um, Laurel K. Hamilton and Anita Blake series, and I just gave up. Like I don't know where how many books are out in that particular series at the moment, but I've just had to just yeah not read it anymore because I just found that it got to a nice place to sort of not to end the series and it yeah. just seemed to just keep going. Well, I've got that's probably the fourth of the that list of four, and the other three above it. I can give you a top four of my favorite um urban fantasies, and like sure. when we get back to the recording properly. Um, one of my favourites is by Kelly Armstrong and it finished, she actually did finish it she'll do like short stories on her website and as like releases compilations but the main series is all completely sewn up and done Kelly Armstrong that sounds familiar, like you wouldn't want to do a Kristen Feehan because that's just I just found after the second book it was the same freaking story and I was just no. Ah no, Kelly Armstrong with a series, she moves around perspectives so it starts with um, one character for like the first two of the books, and then so it'll go from um, her werewolf POV character to a witch. It'll um, move around. Uh, my favorite character is easily it's a necromancer who is a fake psychic. So she does everything she can to like just like use show um, tools and avoid using her actual powers to speak to the dead and fakes speaking to the dead. And that like there's a lot of complexity to that, which is just pretty funny yeah no she's it's one of those ones you know you always said you meant to read it and i just never got around to it because there's quite a lot of novelists that have come out in the last 20 years writing of that 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 just so much 
so many different authors and so much different fiction that you can that you can sort of access it's just one of those oh yeah I should read that and I never actually do did you guys ever read of like um I think it was called the house of night or something because I think I've got up to like book eight of it and I don't actually know if it's ever finished oh dear no I don't I've not read that series house of night not not reading any bells I have a terrible yeah. confession to make. I actually, uh, and, you know, this is probably the perfect place to do it. Um, I actually didn't read or write romance until a friend of mine took me to <laughs> a romance bookstore here in Melbourne. And um, and uh, I was walking through the books with her and just sort of looking at all the covers. And um, my mother um, raised me on Georgette hires which was the only sort of romance she has and they weren't bodice rippers they were very strong character driven stories um that that were that were more about um you know arranged marriages as opposed to bodice rippers but i found a book with a woman a picture of a woman who actually had a band-aid on her throat and it was called a girl's guide to vampires by katie McAllister. and she actually wrote a really she's right she's written a great and and funny series um that's got a very comedic um bent to it it's really quite enjoyable if you do like this is uh, um luna i think if you haven't picked her up you might seriously enjoy her writing um it's it's got the vampire seduction element to it but there's also a very strong uh female uh, you you cannot be serious i'm not going to do this which negates that whole stalkerish (laughs) vampire thing i'm literally just going to look up actually sounds pretty cool Katie McAllister. She's a very, very small author, but absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I think I have to try that myself. <laughs> yeah, Girl's Guide to Vampires is very, very tongue-in-cheek about the whole vampire things. Whilst, and she's done this quite, I think, beautifully. Very, very tongue-in-cheek about the whole vampire soulmate thing while still being sexy and attractive. And the fact that the cover had a girl with a Band-Aid on her neck was what <laughs> made me buckle and sort of pick up the book. And then I just started reading the pages and I'm like, you can't be serious. But the writing was, you know, it was so so different from your standard, oh, I'm a poor woman who's being hunted by this terrible creature. Main character's like, that's that's bullshit. I'm sorry, that is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what we need. We need them to call him out. Yeah. Well, they do. This is the thing. And I love, she's a very, very underrated writer. Um because she does. The main characters call these guys out on their bullshit. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not. I find it funny because I'm just not afraid of vampires at all. If I think about a vampire, I'm just like, you know what? You know, you ever heard of Count Chocula from the cereal or something? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, it's Count Chocula. Like, I, I've never been afraid of a vampire. So it was very surprising to me when I found out that they had like mass hysteria about it at some point, kind of like they did with the witches, you know, public executions and whatnot. Oh, I just yeah. thought that was crazy because to me, they are pretty stupid. Yeah, well, back to it, like when <laughs> it's what you don't know is what you're scared of. So once people know about yeah. vampires, it does. I'll use I use the pun again. Defang them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's perfect. I was going to say, the one thing that actually is kind of, like, not scary, but, like, they can use it. Like, I was watching Supernatural, and it was, it was like, an episode just after, like, Twilight came out. So it was, like, a lot of girls being obsessed with vampires. So guys, <laughs> like, male vampires were literally just going into chat rooms, like, yeah, I'm a real vampire. And girls were just going to meet them. 
And obviously, like, they weren't like the soft vampires. They were like being charming for like two minutes. And then they just like kill them. Dang. I just thought it was an interesting episode. I, I probably blog. saw that episode. Supernatural is great. <laughs> I saw watching about season 12, though. So. Oh, me too. I think it was season 10. I, I was going to ask, do you guys have any tropes that you really like about like vampires? Like, even like cheesy ones, like, oh, I want to see them turning into bats more, or I want to see them getting freaked out from not seeing their reflections. I think that the. Uh, the tropes I really, really like. There's the element of seduction, you're like, which is the idea that, you know, the wants and desires of a female virginally don't, um, don't matter in the face of his desire, which is nice and sexy and whatnot. But I like the other aspect of it too, which was done is by, um, I've forgotten the name of the director, but he did a TV, a, TV, a mini TV series um, about vampires in New Zealand living um, in rooming together. And I think it was We Are the Night or um, something like, I've forgotten the name of it. It's really, really dreadful. But you do have that. The main actor is, who's also the director is standing in front of a mirror and he's like, look, floating teacup. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd enjoy in all honesty. What do you in the shadows? My thing is, if That's a vampire, it. if you can't enjoy garlic bread, then what's the point in even living? Right. Oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> what? You know what I like? I like. What's up with the? What do you call them? Uh, um, I'm thinking about it. Alcado. You mean the anime? Yeah, but no, like, um, what do you call it? It's an anagram. Anagram. <laughs> So I really, my favorite trope about vampires is the anagram because I was reading about the story that predates Stoker's Dracula. I believe it was called Carmilla or something. And her name was flipped around. She was like a countess or something. Countess, whatever the backward spelling of Carmilla is. And Alucard is, you know, um... Dracula. Oh, I'm Dracula, yes, from yes. Helsing. <laughs> yes. yes, I love that. Where did that come from? I want more. Look, it sounds I... so natural, though. <laughs> if you if you enjoy the the Japanese take on westernized um, vampire horror, one of the ones that I can um, really, really recommend, actually there's a couple, um, is not just, if you liked, uh, if you liked Helsing and um, those sorts of ones, the other ones to watch are going to be Trinity Blood, and another one called Blood Plus, actually, which is very, it has a very interesting take on, on the whole subject of vampirism. I feel like Blood Plus has been online forever, but I don't know anyone who's actually watched it that can vouch for it. So, I, I can and would absolutely. Blood Plus is, I like it because it's not a long series. I don't like watching series that go on forever, for, particularly for anime, um, because there's so many filler episodes. Um, yeah. But yeah, Trinity Blood, Blood <laughs> Plus, Helsing. Those are three really, really good animes. Okay, not going to lie. I just Googled it because I can. No. <laughs> I <laughs> and the first picture to pop up is a girl being um, in some dude's arms, and I'm all here for total trash for romance. I know <laughs> the exact image that you're, that you're looking at. The concept of the story is that she's some sort of um, rare warrior, and it's, her blood is the secret. And she actually ends up cutting her hand on that sword 
and uses the blood on the sword to stab her enemies who are then effectively crystallized by the reaction of her blood inside their bodies. Um, yeah, it's a great series. Is and there her a ship that I can sail on here? Oh, oh, honey, <laughs> there, are, there is a big ship there is a and it's in the figure behind her and the first episode the very first episode i was hooked and i won't tell you why but oh. i just sat there and went oh yeah i'm watching all of this oh gosh um, val you're just waiting for any excuse to ship stuff <laughs> yeah yeah the i think okay so we're talking about this and we're trying to keep like a good perspective on it. We're, we're giving it its props, but we're also giving a healthy, a healthy helping of, um, you know, what do you call it? A healthy helping of skepticism. skepticism. Yes. Thank you. I really like this stuff. Like not, not like not the twilight stuff or anything, but I just think it's fun. It is kind of sexy. <laughs> like I can't lie. <laughs> Cause I'm trying to, mostly what I'm trying to do is really get into the heads of why we do like most of this stuff and why it is so popular. So it's really interesting to like hear the origins of everything and how it flipped. And what, what do you think is, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Do you think vampires will always be sexy? Do you think somebody's going to try to make it horrific again? Well, I'm, I'm trying. trying. <laughs> You're trying to make it horrific in what way? I'm trying to like make it scary like the new thing I want to write is a vampire one with it actually like they have all the tropes of like Edward but it's still not right it's still extremely problematic Mm. so that's what I want to write next but I need Mm. to finish what I'm currently writing um you need to finish your stuff because somehow she be having me ship stuff and it's like a short (laughs) story i'm like what's going on i just i'm apparently just a hopeless romantic (laughs) gosh (laughs) so um so i i want you all to refer to me from now on as aknalav please that is my anagram (laughs) uh your vampire name yes hello i'm your host (laughs) aknalav Yeah, no, sorry. I can't even remember that. I had to look at the <laughs> What? Like, EJ, will you join my podcast? Who are you? <laughs> Excuse me, it's Jay, all right? This is Jay. <laughs> I, I can't even pronounce that. I'm not even going to try. Jay. Uh, and then we have Oxa, who is nice and easy. Oh, my. Wait. Aska. We gonna that's ask her what's up. <laughs> and that's what people call me anyway, because they don't know how to say my name. Oh, that's infuriating. I've got to correct them so often. <laughs> and then Luke is Eckle or Ekel. That actually sounds awesome. Ekel? Yeah, I like that. That sounds like my vampire name. And all along, I'm actually putting my vampire name backwards to masquerade as a Yes, the anagram is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> You sound like a mathematician who failed as a teacher. Equals. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm a mathematician that failed at everything. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, we, we got off. <laughs> you guys, this editing session is going to be crazy. But I'm here I actually for it. wanted to, you kind of got 
before, but I actually really wanted to hear how Luke's going to make vampires scary again because it's it's it goes in waves and there's going to be another wave coming up in the next you know three to five years and I'm curious yeah. to see see how how it might progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I um, I wanted to make it scary. I went I've, the script's fully written. Um, it just needs cleaning up. It's going to be submitted to the ScreenCraft.org horror contest for this year. Going for a late submission, I'm still tweaking it. Um, and what I wanted was I wanted to like go a bit more Nosferatu. I wanted it to be disgusting. I think like that bringing some revulsion back into it will make it. Um, it's just got to be more monstrous again. I took the romance yeah. out of it, which goes against vampires somewhat. But I, um, the way I approached it is that the people being brought under this creature's thrall are um it's basically keeping us pets and so the power dynamic is still there and it's got that uncomfortable mm-hmm. edge to it yeah and that's that's what i'm waiting to have happen like and uh, because if anybody watching it particularly it's got a more adult content so a sense of violence and and horror to it that's for an older audience is really going to be um into that particularly after all the mocking of twilight mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think we have, like, I don't know, a duty to make vampires, make vampires great again? No, do we have a duty to make sure they go back to, like, how they used to be with Bram Stoker? Or do you think maybe they're just meant to be sexy (laughs) forever? No, I think it's whatever's Uh right for the story. I think it's down to the author. I think our duty is to do as many different things as possible so we can enjoy different things. If you've got a good sexy story, you go do the best damn sexy story mm-hmm. you can. And I don't think vampires will ever not be sexy. I think even the Bram Stoker one, in a way, it was kind of cheesy. So it's oh. like, how how do you want to like take it? So if you, you want to make them absolutely terrifying, try your best. I was rolling my eyes the entire time. <laughs> like, gosh, he is really hitting it home with the the sexual overtones and all that. Like he was like. Don't do it. <laughs> but... I also think that you, we're de- desensitized to it. We're desensitized yeah. to the, Bra- uh, the original Bram Stoker as a, a tool of seduction because it's been, and I think Luke touched on this before, it's been built upon and it's been built upon into a tool of seduction as opposed to a tool of horror, which was what it was me- originally meant to be. Mm-hmm. Luke, you're our horror um, guru. <laughs> what do you think about, what do you like make of it? the how the vampires um descent or ascent into popular culture and horror and whatnot oh um a lot of people just seem to get quite angry about it like it's been taken from them but it's more that it's been shared in other places because the horror stuff is still out there um you can't draw a direct line from blade to twilight the different branches of the same tree it's not one linear line and we're not stuck in one place. So I, I'm kind of... Twilight is not for me. I don't have an inner teen <laughs> girl that's excited by Twilight. I don't like it. But I don't want to just rail against it and say everyone's wrong. Because you're just driving away people that might come over and see my side, my stories to tell about vampires, as they expand what they like. And as, um, So all of those tween girls that were screaming so loud, eardrums burst about Twilight, are going to grow up and they're going to go and disseminate different pop culture. They're going to like different things. 
They're going to go back to the classics. They've got the new The Lost Boys series coming out soon. Um, they're going to move on and do other things. Like So the people that watch Twilight that then become massive Supernatural mm -hmm. fans. I like Supernatural. I'm happy sharing that with them. There's no need to be a gatekeeper over it. Um, invite them in. Join the vampire party. Well, that's an interesting term to use, gatekeeping, because it's one of the few genres, like specific genre, that doesn't have very many presets because there's been so much written about it, aside from the fact that vampires need humans to exist. Um, that's sort of the only precursor. And even still, there's fiction out there where where there's alternate methods, you know, of, of, of the way that they live their lives that's not not entirely about that. It's a, It's one of the most flexible genres out there. Yeah, totally. You, I mean, just in the folklore, you got people saying, oh, they do cast shadows and they, and they do have reflections. And then others are like, no, there are no shadows because they don't have any souls and they don't, they have no reflection. So, like. Oh, I can go one further on mm -hmm. pedantry with that one. It wasn't actually that they didn't have reflections. It was the silver in the yeah. old mirrors, because the silver was pure. It wasn't what? showing the vampire's reflection. It wasn't that they wouldn't have a reflection in a puddle. It was the silver that was the trick. That's Whoa. fascinating. I've never heard that. I literally looked that up for this podcast. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> do you have any other fun, um, fun, what do you call it? Do you have any other fun information? Oh, more vampires. <laughs> Scrolling up the notes. Um, I heard I saw one that was um, apparently they don't have garlic because garlic was known to have healing tendencies. I don't know if that's true, but I just oh. saw that in passing. Oh yeah, like the healing stuff is with that because garlic worm traditionally is supposed to strengthen you physically and spiritually. So you've got the spiritual strength to it. That probably comes back around to like the um, idea that um, like Bram Stoker brought in faith as a count of the vampires. Um, it wasn't that there was a specific baby Jesus going to kick the vampire's ass. <laughs> it was just that, like at that time, that culture, God was the answer for everything. Because like, pray there wasn't germ, there wasn't much in the way of medicine. You had prayer, so that was mm -hmm. the default. Um, but uh, there's loads of weird ones. Like I think the weirdest one is probably um, it's mentioned briefly in Dracula and then never used. Because Bram Stoker was making it up as he went along, it was a serialized um, book. That's how it ended with like they went through so much detail about what kills a vampire, and then they cut his throat, stabbed him in the heart, and boot him down a cliff. <laughs> so he didn't even get around to using any of these methods to kill Dracula. And I think Hammer um, Horror actually used that as a jumping off point for sequels because uh, it's like they just read the book and go, they didn't kill him. <laughs> it didn't do anything that kills a vampire See, to him at the end. I've always wondered if that hadn't actually come. Like, obviously, when it was originally written, it didn't it didn't feature into it. But I always felt like the twenties version of the he comes back was almost in in um, response to what happened uh, with Rasputin um, and the the fiction around him because he was he and just for those who don't know, he was an advisor to the Russian royal family during the. Uh, First World War, and he actually um, was a religious. Who was a religious um, advisor to the family, but he was a very deeply intense man who lots of women really, really liked. And he fits into the whole 
um, the whole uh, essence of attractiveness when it comes to the vampires and because the, he was super intense and of course some people objected to to the way he was talking to the royal family so they killed him but they had to use quite a lot of methods to do so yeah um, I think there's like loads of urban fantasy where Rasputin is written as a vampire there's definitely a connection there there's also a blood connection because it was a blood disease in the child which is why the royal family kept him around even though it was unpopular he was the only person who could help their child but I also think that he he was pop. And you look at photos of him; he's, he's he can see it in his face. He's a deeply intense person, and and from you know some of the the history written about him, he was um, he could draw in the ladies, which you know is a vampire's you know whole kit. Hey. <laughs> I want to get back around to a weakness because we're going to have very confused listeners at this point. I went off on one and then never actually said what the one weakness was that never got used in the book. It was a mountain ash wood, that one particular tree. And that was a traditional Victorian belief, but they could be traced back to old Nordic folklore. So there was quite a lot of uh, pick and mix mythology that was shoved into Dracula in the end. Even stuff that got discarded and not used by Bram Stoker in the end. Is that available online somewhere, the stuff that got discarded? Because that would be interesting. It's going to be somewhere. Like, so many people talk about this a lot, um, and it's a good, fun debate. Because it's like he, he puts so much into the book that like got mentioned once or barely used. It was like a great handbook to go and make uh, more vampires. I mean, um, at one point they say that a blessed bullet would have been enough to kill him, which would have been really anticlimactic. I am the, I've do the Satan powered Prince of the Night. Fine. Yeah, very Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's like loads, of, even that little um, blessed bullet thing, the blessed ammo is used in loads and loads of stories, modern stories about vampires now. So there's lots of um, things that Bram Stoker mentioned underused, and then the fans ran with much later, people influenced by it and explored that idea much, much later down the line. I actually really liked uh, the, the in the regards to the Blessed Bullet, because I know that Supernatural did it too, but the one that I admire the most out of all the different takes of the Blessed Bullet was the one that came out of the Underworld series, where they changed the bullet's components to being um, liquid nitrate to get the werewolves. Mm, yeah. Um, silver's weird because silver's one of those traditional um, bits of folk um, knowledge about it healing that turn out to be true. Um, lots of hospital dressings use collodial silver now because it is a natural antibiotic. You know, I think we're at that time. The Australian Yarama. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Yarama Yahoo. Right, this is uh, Aboriginal folklore from the, for- the forests of the Pacific coast. It's one of those cautionary folklore tales aimed at keeping children safe out of dangerous areas. Um, and because it's Australia, it's more terrifying than anywhere else in the world as far as it goes. This is really weird Naturally. for a vampire. Of course, yeah, it's Australia. Sorry. Home of droppers. Resident Australian on the show. Yeah, no, if it's, if it's messed <laughs> up in ways you couldn't imagine, it's probably Australian. <laughs> okay, let's go with this one then. It looks like a four-foot-tall frog with a huge mouth. It's covered in reddish-brown fur, and it can unhinge its jaw like a snake. It drinks blood from suckers on its fingers and toes. It'll drop down from a tree and latch onto Ah. someone, feeding off of them until they faint. I'm Australian. I've never heard this, and that's Um, frightening. (laughs) Right. This is the exact kind of thing. Oh, don't worry. Here comes more. 
This is exactly what I imagine a stream. The is stronger like. than the strongest. Oh, sorry. You go quickly, oh, and I'll come back on the story. This is exactly what I imagine Australia to be like. Everything can kill you. Ha 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 ha! Terry Pratchett again. His version of Australia, the embodiment of death, <laughs> goes to his reference library, and he asks what will kill you in four X. His version of um, Australia. And he gets buried in the books, so he changes tack, and death then says, "What won't kill you in four X?" And he gets one sole piece of paper, and it says, "Some of the sheep." Yeah, Some. no, apt. Sorry, EJ. <laughs> anyway, Some of them. let's get the back story, to the scary story. story. Um, they're known to be stronger than the strongest man. There is no point in fighting one, no matter who you are. They're great climbers, and they prefer to feed on lone children. But they can only waddle like a cockatoo as they walk along the ground. <laughs> that was a detail Sorry. that was included. They waddle like a cockatoo. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. It's it's pretty good stuff. You should learn, go look online as well and see the pictures of them, or the drawings of them. Um, what it'll do next is it'll swallow the unconscious victim whole, drink a load of water, and then go to sleep. And then when it wakes up from its nap, it'll vomit up its victim. And it'll keep doing this process again. So the second time it spits a victim up, the victim comes out of the Yarama... Um, oh dear, I've lost the word. The Yarama Yahoo... Um, They'll come out shorter and completely hairless. Then the third time they'll spit them up, they'll get even shorter and become covered in thick hair. And every single time they do it, they'll keep going until the victim has become a new Yaramayahu. So the trick to doing it, to getting away from this, is you've got to play dead when you're spat up. The Yaramayahu has to follow a ritual if you play dead that it isn't allowed to cheat on, or the spirits of the fig trees will punish them by turning the monster into tree mushrooms. First, it'll walk away five paces, and it'll waddle back with a stick to poke the victim in the side. If they stay playing dead, it'll waddle away ten paces and back before tickling them with the stick. Then finally, it'll do fifty yards, come back, and tickle them some more. If the victim stays playing dead up to that point, the Yaramayahu will go and have a nap, giving the victim the chance to run away because the, the Yaramayahu is so slow on the ground. The Yaramayahu will then call, Where have you gone, my victim, and begin to chase... But comedically slowly. <laughs> a spiteful Yaramayahu may then drink up all the nearby water, so thirsty people have no choice but to come and drink tree sap where it can dive on them and get a new victim. That's messed up. That is. What? <laughs> that was I... yeah, that's my favourite regional folklore of a vampire because vampires all over the world. You've got the hopping vampires in Asia. The Yaramayahu, Australia just makes them more terrifying. Actually, uh, and I have to confess, I was very interested in bringing this up because, uh, you know, as an Australian, obviously I've done some study of the of the um, the Aboriginal culture here. But there was one story that um, absolute if you if you if you like monsters, this one's a really really good one. Um, it was uh, forgotten the author, um, but the story was called um, the Nargan and the Stars. Have you have you read that, Luke? No, I haven't. This is the Nargan and the Stars uh, was written by, and I've just looked her up, Patricia Wrightson, and it's actually a story for young adults that I swear you would not want to walk outside at night after you finish reading the story. It is literally sounds like my kind of story, and it's subtle too. The premise of the story was that a um a, a young boy whose parents die in an accident ends up going to live in a rural Australian farm with one of his aunts, and, and um, when he's exploring, 
um, he he finds um, a a frog spirit that's actually quite friendly in a in a lake. So it's not your it's not your your vampire one. It's just a friendly um, uh, frog spirit. Um, but what's interesting is that um, he doesn't discover it until he sort of starts visiting this gully more and more. But the very first time he visits this gully, he finds this really big uh, rock, and he, being a you know city kid, carves his name on it. And then he goes up to the valley the next day, and the rock has moved closer to the farm. And then the frog spirit comes out and tells him that he should not have touched the Nargan. And then the story becomes about this this dark and evil uh, creature that is that is the rock, the Nargan, and it's slowly moving closer and closer to the farmstead every single night. And by the time you get to the end of the story, you, you just, you do not want to go outside. Sounds awesome. I'm such a city kid, that scared me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh. I'm hearing creaks in my house and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but I They're very subtle and, and definitely aimed at a younger audience, but even as an old person, just, just and it's a very short book, um, but just the the premise of being unstoppably stalked by the Nargan is simply terrifying. Very. But, you know, Australia, man. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to come and visit you anymore, EJ. (laughs) Oh, what? (laughs) I'm going straight to London for for loner. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Australia's mostly nice, but don't go into um, anywhere wild. Even the trees will get you. The Gimby Gimby. The Gimpy Gimpy, that's the one. That That's a story too? That's not a story, that's a real shrub. Uh, the Gimpy Gimpy, it's like a giant nettle on steroids. The, the pain is so intense that people have killed themselves to get away from it. So a soldier out in the uh, bush one time, they, found, they heard a gunshot go off and found his body. It looks like he tried to wipe after going to the toilet with a Gimpy Gimpy <gasps> tree, and the pain down there was so intense he just shot himself rather than trying to live with it. What? <laughs> oh my god! I didn't know this was. Wait, this is true. I didn't. I didn't know That's the true. world was like that. <laughs> Australia is Australia. It's it's like the Florida of the world. <laughs> Val, I got freaked out when you said you're- it's a portal to hell, but it grows great fruit on the outside. I I just can't believe we've actually like because I hadn't heard that the. the the vampire story. The um, I'm trying to work out how to how to um, pronounce this. The Yarama Yah. It just I can't believe we even made that scary. Like that vampire is that revolting. Like it, just like everything in Australia is scary. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's not until you take into account that everything in Australia is scary. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you just got the you just got the um, the nastiest vampire of all the uh, available traces yeah, as well. It's just Australia. Come on. <laughs> Book a trip to no, Europe. No, no, evil frog thing. <laughs> um. Okay. So, I mean, technically, we made it through. Is there anything else that you wanted to address? I think we were going to talk I've about got a few unused notes, but I could just go off. No, I was, well, one of the subject, subjects we didn't get to was the other other book topics because I think we were talking about Anita Blake before, but there's a few others as well. Okay. Yeah. So, like, what books do you recommend? Is that what we're saying? Or oh, my favorite urban fantasies. Um, we talked a bit about an- uh, 
Laura K. Hamilton's Anita Blake series. Uh, I think you'll find that when you go back to the recording later, but um, that was a good one. I also really like Patricia Briggs's Mercy Thompson books. Uh, Mercy Thompson being a mechanic who can shapeshift into a coyote. Um, and again, that's got the grab bag of furries, vampires, werewolves, very traditional stuff. But I think like my favourite two urban fantasy series, we've got The Women of the Otherworld by Kelly Armstrong. Now, I really like that. It moves around perspectives quite a lot rather than having an MC. It shows off the world really well, but the link is it's women living in that world. So you've got a um, the vampire, there's a werewolf, there's a necromancer, there's a witch, and it just goes around looking at these and showing them off and how they interact with the human world and how they come into uh, conflict. And it actually ended, the series is fully finished, but she'll still do short stories like through her website and as compilations. Um, afterwards, but the series itself is over because we talked about how like they just go on interminably and it just never ends. Women of the Other World has an ending and it was really good. And it's not just the women writers. Uh, one of my favourites is definitely uh, The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Has anyone else heard of them? That's literally been on my list for years, but I yeah. actually haven't got around to reading it yet. Oh, it's so good. Never I heard of it. Read it. Uh, Jim Butcher, one fan, took his book to get signed and he said. This book made me so angry, I threw it against the wall, and Jim Butcher replied, Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Jim, uh, the Dresden Files, it's a private detective who's also a wizard, but he's trying to like, make it be a private detective to make pay the bills in the human world, but he is a wizard as well. And there's one early book, it's about necromancers trying to take over the city. They open up a vortex of necromantic powers, and his idea was... Um, the dinosaur bones in the museum are technically a corpse, so he rides a um, reanimated T-Rex into the centre of the city to try and stop it from being destroyed. And it's full of really imaginative, weird, um, fun moments like that. Definitely recommend The Dresden okay. Files. I think I'll probably read that next. Anybody else have some favourite vampire stories or movies? I think I spoke before that probably won't be in the actual podcast about uh, an author called Katie McAllister. And oh, one I of can the reasons add that. that. Well, and one of the reasons that I really, really like about her is we were talking about the stalkerish nature of, of vampires and the element of them pressing upon their, um, upon their intended victims, the, that their desires are more important than the victim's wishes and whatnot. And it, it does to have an element of that but the katie McAllister uh, vampire series is actually really excellent done you've got very realistic relatable uh heroines who are funny but they also call these guys on their on their nonsense and i think that's a very underrated message for um for people enjoying a more romantic um version of the vampire series um and especially when for the romance side of it you've got authors like Christine Feehan, who um, I have read and, and didn't honestly enjoy, but quite a lot of the romance genre is, is based on a lot of, a lot of her work. Um, I don't know why, but like, I haven't watched like Blade in years, but like I got a random thing that I just saw it and I'm like, that was really cool when I watched it. Yeah. So I, I really just want to rewatch Blade and just see if it was as cool as I remember. And the other one was oh, it's still mixing cool. like, vampire stuff with kind of sci-fi elements so like i am legend um i, I oh yeah. no that's a really interesting one because um i am legend it's basically like we talk about modern vampires and twilight 
viral zombies by way of um, I Am Legend is another way that old ghoul, old vampire myths have lived on. So um, to a point, like around the time of Twilight, it's like they split in two. You had stuff like 28 Days Later, which is more like viral zombies, I Am Legend. Yep. And then you had the sparkle love interest vampires on the other side of it. <laughs> if you like that that element too, I don't know if you've read him, but the other author that I really recommend for that that unromantic element of it is uh, Justin Cronin wrote a trilogy starting with The Passage. And that was a very, very interesting take on vampirism and where it comes from. And it also does a post-apocalyptic thing, but he actually does he actually goes back and explores what started it and then he jumps ahead into the future. And that trilogy and, and the message behind that trilogy um, had very interesting biblical overtones, but most importantly, very much paints the vampires as utter monsters. <laughs> I After Twilight, I had this thing where I was only reading like the cheesy rom-com one, so now I'm kind of going the opposite way. Yeah. yeah. That goes back to what Luke was saying about, yeah. like, how some of these the girls are going back. Yeah, like, I'm sure a lot of, you know, when you're that young, you get really into something and then you go deeper into the rabbit hole. <laughs> we probably have, like, the next Bram Stoker-style book coming from a <laughs> Twilight lover. <laughs> uh, don't say C.L. James or anything. <laughs> Uh, no, that's no. <laughs> but I absolutely do believe that someone who was a 12-year-old girl who was Team Jacob is one day going to turn around and just drop an absolute masterpiece when they grow up. Yeah. Or when they finish growing up, because they're pretty grown up by now. I'm yeah. for her, whoever she is. Yeah. <laughs> but, ooh, can you imagine a, a flipping uh, Ram Stoker... Fifty Shades of Grey type crossover that made me think (laughs) that it's perfect. (laughs) There is so much fan. There's so much fiction out there that 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 does that that uses vampirism as an excuse to explore the darker tendencies and bring brings it back to that that to that sexuality um, aspect. And I don't know any. I haven't read any books like that but I, i've seen the covers and read the blurbs for books like that out there that we use they've quite literally taken the twilight and the 50 shades and put them together to make a story yeah Badly. you know uh I, you, you know how there's the internet that thing it's like a rule like that there's i think you you know there's you're referring th- to rule 34 yes <laughs> if, if... no one google that <laughs> So, if you don't know what Rule 34 is, cover up any sensitive ears. It's, what is it? There's whatever is on, there's porn for anything, right? Right. If, if it, it exists, there's porn of it. Yes, yeah. yes. So, you know, there's like blood play. Oh, have you ever heard of that? It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet you people are just you. Yeah, it's, there's an it's not just it's a, it's about doing exactly what we've been talking about across the entire podcast which is exploring hidden desires and it certainly started with um this aspect of um having the the sexual freedom to choose you know to 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 go with the stranger which is not what you're supposed to do and there's the 
the heightened forbidden a- aspect of all of that. But with the absolute swathe of everything that's available so readily, it's allowed for a much greater exploration of sexual desire, which includes, for some strange reason, balloons. Um, you know, it, you can be free to enjoy everything, but the general rule is as long as it's not hurting anyone else. Yeah. Yes. Just think it's interesting. I think we went a lot. When I went into this episode, I didn't think we would talk about sex so much. (laughs) But like, it's, (laughs) it's like inexplicably entwined with it. Like, I feel like you can't get vampire without talking about that aspect. Or at least acknowledging that it exists. Yes. That it is a key part of. And it has been for a long time. It didn't just start with Twilight and Vampire. And it will not end with that either. Yeah. <laughs> I did at least come up with a non-sexy vampire from around the world, thanks to Australia. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm still incredibly impressed about that. Like, I just sit there going, that's just, I'm still sitting here going, that's messed up. <laughs> 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 All right. So we are at the end. Could you please take a final moment to promote yourself? Uh, so I write under the name EJ Dawson. Find me at the website of the same name. And uh, I have my social media links in there. And I'm looking forward to being able to hopefully give a publication date for um, my novel Behind the Veil in the next few months, um, as well as um, a sci-fi, uh, sci-fi series. Um, and, yeah, feel free to contact me through my webpage. Yeah. Um, yeah, and follow me on Twitter, Luna's Musing, and I'm going to have a blog post up soon about Game of Thrones because I'm trash. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> well, um, I'm Luke Greensmith on Twitter and Facebook, and I'm always happy to chat with people on social media. There's the uh, the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm the research run and will appear on occasionally. And the spin-off show of Luke Law, which is just me focusing on folklore exclusively, which is a uh, monthly, end-of-the-month um, drop now. I've done two episodes. Um, the It's on a time release, so the second one comes out 30 days after the patrons get it from mm. Patreon. Um, and so I've just done The Beast of Jevudan and dug down into Werewolves, and I'll be doing uh, Black Dogs of Britain next. Ooh. Awesome. I'm sure like half of the listeners are going to rush over because they want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got uh, my listeners are going to be rushing over to listen to this. They want to hear what I've been saying on vampires. Thanks so much for listening. Whatever platform you're on, make sure that you subscribe, comment, you rate it, because that helps us get more visibility. And, you know, more famous people will come on and we can all mingle with the famous people because, you know, (laughs) that's pretty cool. But (laughs) and if you would like to send me a cupcake, please do. All right. (laughs) Bye bye.